0: Okay, that's my rant. And
1: we're not denying that there are like Han chauvinist attitudes in China, but the question is, what's being done about it? Whereas white supremacy, it's not really effectively combated in a meaningful way in the West. What they what they'll do is they'll find like minorities who are pretty much white on the inside, and then tokenize them and just be like, "Yeah, we're diverse." Obama. <laughs>
2: What's well, interesting yes, like yes, Obama. <laughs> yeah, Kamala. In the United States, So, like um people people aren't like fed like full Marxism, right? Or like theory. They're fit they're fed bits and pieces. So they like, you know, kind of understand it at like a really a really elementary level. Uh and they don't understand like um like a class analysis for one but also they don't understand like uh like dialectical materialism for instance right that's kind of like the mindset needed to kind of understand that these uh you know vastly different situations and countries with completely different histories you know, you can't you can't apply the same models and labels to these to these different situations do you understand
0: yeah, definitely. I mean, Mao actually spoke on more than one occasions uh, against Han chauvinism, right? He warned against Han chauvinism among the Chinese communist cadres about uh, how to conduct their work in, uh, in the non-Han regions. Uh, Richard, you have a
3: question? you're on mute yeah man I have a problem with (laughs) mutes, but that's my thing so whenever so like I said like I understand if somebody says I'm Cantonese I'm Taiwanese I'm Tibetan you know but if somebody says I'm not Chinese I'm, I'm you know like how do how do I even like I, I don't even know like I don't even know how to respond to that because you know like especially in Tibet because obviously Tibet is two percent indigenous and everybody else is just mixed you know so when somebody says I'm I'm Tibetan but not Chinese to me I'm just like what what the fuck what are you talking about right you mean Taiwan I mean, I mean, Tibet Tibet's, I mean, Tibet's
1: much more than two percent indigenous no my bad
3: my I mean, Taiwan yeah. yeah I'm just right now it's kind of late and kind of like you know but it, it's like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, you're, you're Taiwanese, but not Chinese. And
1: Do you want me to get into that? Like how that became yes, a thing? Yeah,
0: please. yeah, we? please.
3: Please. Yeah, because um, unfortunately, I'll
1: have to give some more. Hist- I know that this, this has been a long episode, but to really understand it, you need a little bit more historical context. And believe me, I'm trying to make this as um like TLDR as possible.
0: I hope you guys don't mind. That's fine. Just give right. us a general uh, outline, because for more great in detail, uh, d- gory details, they can visit our you know history of Taiwan series on Silicon yes. Steel Podcast. But go ahead. So, Shang-Yi.
1: ever since um the end of World War Two, the U.S. Ha- has um the U.S. at first wanted to um kind of prop up Chiang Kai Shek as um its kind of its puppet. In Asia, kind of like the role that Japan eventually played, like I wanted it to be, it's like junior partner of the Asia Pacific region. But China had different plans. It um defeated the KMT, the the Chinese people defeated the KMT, and all the the only territory that um the KMT had left was Taiwan, um, uh, Penghu, Jinmen, Mazu. So. Um, the KMT like retreats to Taiwan and it becomes the base for the old so-called Republic of China government. Now, in February 1949, before the establishment of the PRC, the trends were already kind of clear. So the U.S. diplomat, um, Livingston T. Merchant, was sent by Atchison to Taiwan on a field mission to see if there could be an autonomous government set up in Taiwan. So he met up with the um, the chairman of the provincial government, um, Chen Cheng, with These four offers, if Chen Cheng separated the provincial government from the national government and cut off communication with the communists, the U.S. will send 25 million U.S. dollars of aid annually. All right. And then another, the second condition, the allied forces would occupy Taiwan and then there would be a meeting on the transfer of power to the new government. After that meeting, third because third condition, after that meeting takes place, the US will send its Navy and Air Force to Taiwan to the Taiwan Strait to prevent an attack. And then they would inform Chiang Kai-shek that if he wishes to go to Taiwan, he would have to do so as a political refugee. So from here on, you can already see that that Chiang Kai-shek was kind of not the US's first choice. He had too many ideas of his own. He was too much of a Chinese nationalist. He would never, he he would never um say okay to a plan to divide
0: China into two countries. He's not a pliant puppet, you know. He, he has, he's a, he's a more independent-minded tyrant. Yes,
1: so, but Merchant, unfortunately for him, made the offer to the wrong person. Chen Cheng was loyal to Chiang Kai-shek. And although he was anti-communist, he was a Chinese nationalist who refused to separate Taiwan from the mainland. So this is like the first overt attempt by the US, by a certain segment of the US imperialists to create a two-China or one-China, one-Taiwan um, situation. And but then there was another set of section of imperialists that did not wish to split China. They did not, they did not want to recognize the new socialist government. And they also wanted to cut ties with Chiang Kai-shek. So at the same time, they didn't really want the issue of Taiwan to ruin relations with the newly established PRC because their plan was to win them over from the Soviets. Because as you may know, China and Russia did not always have the best of relationships. And when the PRC was first founded, there were still some, um, some... Treaties that the Chinese felt infringed on their sovereignty that were left over from the um, ROC days when the Soviet Union made certain um, uh, agreements with China, like, you know, l- l- lending out some of the railroads in the Northeast, et cetera. So the U.S. planned on taking advantage of these contradictions. And um, plus, when Tsarist Russia was around, they um, had plans to, you know, kind of take over China's Northeast, like Mongolia and Xinjiang, so yeah, anyways, it, on January 5th, 1950, Truman opposed the Cairo Declaration and the Potsdam communique. And what those um, agreements stipulated was that Japan would return their um, the colony seized through aggression back to their rifle owners and Korea would become independent. So Truman recognized that Taiwan was a part of China. And um, yeah, at that point, Chiang Kai Shek was pretty fucked because um, the the um, his troops were demoralized and they were his support base, because um, and while he was in the mainland, his support came from like the landed gentry, the um, the compradors, the um, you know, the kind of the bourgeoisie. In Taiwan, all he had left was the national army, and they were kind of just they didn't really want to be in Taiwan; they wanted to go home, and Chiang Kai-shek, knowing history, felt that this was like a repeat of the um kind of like the whole Ming and Qing situation, and that he was kind of doomed. So he was ready to negotiate with Mao. But luckily for, I guess for Chiang Kai-shek, the um the PRC faced a few setbacks. So um there was a delegation headed by Liu Shaoqi that was sent to Moscow to meet Stalin, they asked for 200 planes and pilot training to liberate Taiwan. But Stalin was like, no, because, you know, he had, the Soviet Union had just um, fought World War II and they suffered great losses and they didn't want to risk a war with the US. Whereas um, at the same time, there was also the Korea issue. Stalin was reluctant to promise much to China regarding Taiwan because to him, realistically, Taiwan was not as big of a concern to, um, you know, defending the Soviet Union. But Korea was of great importance because it was right up there on the border. And historically, Korea has always been used as a land bridge for imperialists to go into China. And China's northeast is just right next to Russia. And also um, Korea shares a border with the Soviet Union. So, but he, so he did promise in 1949 that if a war did break out in Korea, that the Soviet Union would deliver material aid. And as you know, later on, the Korean War broke out and um, the troops that were intended to be used on liberating Taiwan were
0: sent to Korea. And um, and there's yeah. also the U.S. intervention because uh, as uh, Korean War broke out uh, prior to the Korean War, uh, U.S. kind of set Taiwan and both Taiwan and South Korea as kind of outside of the Chinese defense perimeter in in the East Asia. There was actually a debate within the U.S. government about what to do, uh, but right after the outbreak of Korean War, then. Uh, Taiwan was then included as part of uh, the line that U.S must held again to contain China. So, so U.S sent in the Seventh Fleet into the Taiwan Strait in 1950. Uh, this was uh, I think it's June 1950 and, and basically prevented uh, the crossing of the PL, crossing of PLA crossing the Taiwan Strait to liberate Taiwan. Uh, this is the first kind of overt, US military intervention to prevent the Chinese unification. Back to yes, you, Yes,
1: And at the same time um so as we mentioned earlier, Chiang Kai-shek's government had still has control over some offshore islands from the mainland. And they still do today, right? Um two of the main ones, Jinmen and Matsu. The US really wanted Chiang Kai-shek to retreat from those islands because once he retreats then what separates mainland China and Taiwan would not just be like, you know, like, because those islands are within swimming distance of areas controlled by um the P- the PRC, like under effective control. So like if you get rid of those islands, psychologically, the distance between mainland China and Taiwan would be like 100 miles, like the the width of the Taiwan Strait. And that would lend more legitimacy to like, okay, it's two countries. Chiang Kai-shek didn't want to retreat from those islands for that purpose, but he didn't have an he didn't have a real excuse to tell the U.S. why he should stay there. So during this time, Mao Zedong was just like, "Okay, I'm going to help you out. I'm just going to start shelling Jinmen." So then that provided Chiang Kai-shek with the excuse to keep his troops stationed there and to stay there until today and um, until 1979. There was this thing where um, the P- People's Liberation Army would shell Jinmen on like. Um, uh, Either the even days or the odd days, and then the um, the KMT troops would shell um, Xiamen like on the other days. Yeah, this is called the, the whole, like, this is called
0: the second Taiwan Strait crisis, and really was a demonstration by Mao to the U.S. Uh, you know, to a protest a protest against the U.S. intervention uh, in the Chinese affairs because both Mao and is
1: Mao telling the U.S. that Chiang Kai Shek is a bastard. But he's a Chinese bastard. We're not going to just hand him over completely
0: to you, because you know both Zhang Mao and Jiang Kai She saw this as a Chinese civil war, as something to be settled between them. You know, among the Chinese, they, they they didn't they didn't feel like the you know U.S. should should kind of butt out. You know, Jiang Kai She want the U.S. military aid, you know, the financial aid, but he did not want U.S. dictating to him what to do, right? And then you know the mao the 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 the, the shelling of Jinmen wasn't a really a prelude for a large scale amphibious assault on Jinmen island it was just more a demonstration to the us of determination uh, of mainland china uh, on this uh, taiwan issue and uh, then mao also scheduled it in like around the time when uh uh, when Khrushchev, uh, no, he did
1: it right after Khrushchev left. So then the U.S. thought that it was because Khrushchev told him, like, "Hey, do this," but really, Khrushchev was against Mao doing that. Yeah,
0: and so, so also Mao did it so to give it a, a it made it seem to United States that Soviet Union stood by Mao's decision, which publicly Soviet had to back <laughs> the Chinese decision. So, so, so but Khrushchev was pissed. Yeah, yeah. Rick, did you have a question? You you, you, just, you had your hands up for a long time.
3: Yeah, so you know my thing. I'm just pretty. You know, it's it's not shocking, but you know, whenever uh, people bring up the um, free di- free Tibet or you know separation of of Taiwan or Hong Kong, like they totally ignore like U.S. aggression in that area, like the you know the bases in Japan, the base in Korea, you know, or or anywhere else, or even like you know. We're having their navy go to the South China Sea, and you know, like if we have, I think one big thing we we have to acknowledge is how it's U.S. aggression on China, right? Like you know, if 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 Taiwan was separate, or, or you know, or 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 Tibet, whatever, it, you know, like we can have that conversation, but at the same time, we need to have the conversation of of the U.S. U.S. aggression, you know. So yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Here's the thing. Like, I'm perfectly okay. Like, if for like if for Taiwan independence, if it were truly independent and not like becoming an even bigger puppet of the U.S., but the reality is that such a movement doesn't exist. I like to tell people in ta- in Taiwan, my friends. Okay, you really want Taiwan independence? Now let's imagine how this will play out. You declare independence, right? And for some reason, Beijing says okay. But you, right then, you tell the U.S. Fuck off! We're not buying weapons from you. We're gonna buy weapons from I don't know Moscow, and we're not gonna do your bidding. We're not gonna we're, we're gonna maintain good relations with our neighbors, and we don't care about your interests. Now, do you think the US will sit idly by, or there's at, at that point they're not gonna be so um, supportive of the um, the separatists? There's gonna be a co- there's gonna be a
0: color revolution in Taipei. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. True independence
1: and sovereignty means that your decisions are not dictated by empire. They're not dict, and you're not part of the neoliberal system. There is no separatist movement in Taiwan that is anti-U.S. imperialism and that calls for the exit from the neoliberal system. Not only that, they seek to move Taiwan closer to the U.S., And another thing about the issue of reunification and independence is it's a very convenient distraction from, you know, issues that stem from capitalism. I mean, the former leader Chen Shui-bian once said, there is no issue of left and right in Taiwan, only an issue of reunification and independence, which is really funny because as long as there is class in a society, there's going to be issues of left and right.
3: Yeah, I have a question. I have a question for both of you. So, so, you know, I think uh, both of you have grown up in the U.S., you know, for a certain uh, part, part of your lives. So, you know, do you feel like there is a um, difference in ideology from people that were, you know, Chinese people, Taiwanese people that were raised in the U.S. compared to, you know, back at home in Taiwan or in China or, or you know, or, or I don't know. That's my question. Do you feel like there's a big separation? Well, Oh, for for me, for people, I grew up in
0: mainland China. So yeah, definitely for people, uh, you know, if you just talk to Chinese exchange students who come to US, uh, you you will notice that their outlook Is totally different. Um, One thing I wanted to point out is, you know, when you talk about the U.S. aggression in East Asia, is that the U.S. imperialism is so normalized in the U.S. control media that, you know, when when we talk about U.S. sailing through to uh, South China Sea, U.S. bases in Okinawa, etc. Those just seem to be accepted as normal state of affair. Whereas, you know, like China does anything along its own border. That's a big no-no, which is Totally ridiculous, uh, because like people usually uh, use the argument that oh you know U.S. is in East Asia because the people want us there to counter China. I'm like no, U.S. largest military base is in Okinawa. The Okinawans really wanted U.S. U.S. Marines to get the fuck out of their islands, uh, and 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 people say oh but 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 Japan wanted uh, U.S. there too, but. The Okinawans don't, and Okinawa, as I mentioned before, was the Japanese colony. You know, since the 1870s, they, the 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 reason the Japanese government they stick all the U.S. military based on Okinawa is because they don't really see the Okinawans as true Japanese. You know, so they they don't want they don't want Ameri- they don't want American military on their home islands. So they stick them off on this like their their offshore colony of Okinawa. Over the over objection of the native Okinawans who over. Commonly reject the U.S. military presence. Okay, back to you, uh, Xiang Yu.
1: So I mean, China can have its border disputes with its neighbors, right? That's perfectly normal, especially with some um, countries that um develop develop later and were forced into a world order that they didn't really come up with, like you know. But there's no you can debate over like let's say. Borders between, let's say, China and India. But what you can't, what's undisputable is that none of that belongs
0: to the US. Right? Yeah, I mean, US literally have no reason to be in legitimate reason in East Asia.
1: Exactly. So um, I mean, I guess now we want to um, build up to how the modern-day separatist movement was formed. So I'm just gonna make this really quick. It's like a it's like a condensed version of like a bulk of our episodes on silk and steel. Okay, go. So we mentioned we mentioned martial law, right? The um kongbu, White Terror. Yeah. So um when that was done, around that time, because of the mistrust between like the different like groups within Taiwan, like the new arrivals and the people who are still there, like educated under the Japanese system, Ben or like the um the the people who were already on Taiwan, were excluded from high levels of government. And there was an attitude, uh, there was this air of like Wai supe- like superiority. So, and then at the same time, the petty bourgeois Ben Shengren held classist attitudes towards many of the Sheng-ren. And because the new government was composed of Wai Shengren and because of the aforementioned February 28th incident, there were high levels of distrust and animosity be- between um, Ben Shengren and Wai Shengren. The KMT saw Ben Sheng-ren as potential traders due to having been educated as Japan's colonial subjects and um until 1990s the so-called national assembly the so-called parliament etc were all dominated by wai Shengren. and the wai Shengren were beneficiaries of affirmative action in civil servant examinations and um whereas in 1956 the acceptance rate for ben Shengren was 0.061%
0: just reminder for our audience: uh, the term then referred to the Han Chinese people on Taiwan prior to 1945, and
1: typically white- includes the Aboriginal, like the indigenous people too. But a lot of times, you're just excluded. Yeah, like they don't.
0: Yeah, because there's there's such a marginal, uh, marginalized part of the, uh, the, the population. And then the the White Sudden is uh, is the, the mainlanders who came with uh, Chiang Kai She's army after 1945
1: and 1949. Yes, and um and in 1960, only 13.8 of lieuten- uh, lieutenants, 9.5% of field officers and 1.3% of general officers in the military were born in Taiwan. And this includes like why born in Taiwan. So what does what does that tell you? It's um people in Taiwan felt that they they were in charge of their island right I'm talking to like both this goes to both them um, I guess the indigenous people and the um, the Han Chinese like Ben Xiong人. yeah but the indigenous
0: people were so excluded from uh, from the the the, the 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 Taiwan society at this point anyway so it's it's almost yeah anyway go ahead sorry
1: the main slogan because of um, Chiang kai-shek's um, legitimacy really his support base came from the military. His legitimacy was based on the slogan of reclaiming the mainland, Fan Gong and many people. And at this time, Bin Shengren felt that they were just cannon fodder for Chiang Kai-shek's greater mission of reclaiming the mainland. Because Ben were hardly seen as,
0: like, you know, one of our own by the KMT. They, they were. I mean, in, in, in essence, they were. Uh, there's, a, like, anecdotal stories, like, after 1945, uh, KMT took over Japan. Uh, they basically instituted the same draft policy that Japanese did. To recruit all the people on Taiwan to go fight, but this time the KMT recruited both the Han Chinese and indigenous population on Taiwan to go fight as nationalist troops on mainland. So, um, communist. Yeah, to fight the communist, uh, to fight as nationalist troops against the communist troops on mainland. So, uh, I remember um, Long Yin Tai, who is a Taiwanese author, who wrote about. Um, Da 1940. Her uh, book has a lot of factual inaccuracies, by the it, it way. Does. It does. a lot of sensational bullshit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, yeah, he's a typical, like, Taiwan liberal. She's
1: also she's a外省人. Yes, yes. Pro tip, if they have the name Tai in the name, it's usually a外省人.
0: Yes, he um, he talked about this in his book, but was well, it she? It's the, she, but she, only, a woman. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Sorry, Chinese doesn't have pr- pronouns. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I'm I'm like not, still getting used to the English gender pronoun use. Anyway, so uh, in in um, in the book, she talked about this case of two indigenous uh, Taiwanese, like two indigenous Taiwanese uh, 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 teens who were, got drafted by the KMT. To go fight, uh, in mainland, they ended up in Shandong. And they they were captured by the communists, and so the, the you know f- following the communist policy, they were giving a choice. You know, either they can giving a money and go home, or they join the communist army. So they ended up joining the PLA, <laughs> and and um and you know they learn how to sing this. So they they were with the PLA uh, throughout the Chinese Civil War, and because of the you know the the the, the freeze in the cross-strait relations, they were not able to go home uh to taiwan until the lift of martial law in what 19 late 1980s yeah and th- th- that's when they were finally allowed to go home but you know they were actually successfully able to sue the taiwan government for their benefits because um, officially they signed up as uh, you know as uh, you know vet- as as a part of the nationalist troops right who fought on the on the mainland so now they're they're these PLA veterans uh living on uh, the Taiwan uh military pensions in Taiwan finally rejoined their family they brought over their like mainland spouse and kids <laughs> living in Taiwan and when they got, got interviewed by like Taiwanese uh, media they were so excited to uh, talk about their days as PLA soldiers and they sing the uh which is like the the song, the song PLA songs, right? PLA, almost like a PLA anthem. It, it's just an anecdotal story that I throw in here. So sorry, <laughs> go ahead.
1: Yeah, and then uh, at the same time, um, Bin Shengren felt that reclaiming the mainland would be a victory for Wai Shengren, but it wouldn't necessarily benefit the ben Shengren. And um, as the mainland continued to develop its industrial base, and um, create nukes and um, also replace the so-called ROC in the United Nations, it became even more obvious that the policy of reclaiming the mainland was nothing but just a slogan. It's It was an unattainable fantasy. And without a realistic political goal in Taiwan, there was this sort of ideological vacuum in Taiwan. By And by this time, there was a sizable Sheng petty bourgeoisie that was against the KMT, but also liberal, unlike past opponents of the KMT that were more like, you know, communist or left-leaning. So, Chiang Kai-shek dies in 1975. And um, his term is completed by the um, the vice leader, Yan Jiakan, for the remainder of his term. But really, it was his son that was in charge. Because under the ROC, so-called ROC constitution, the premier, there's not a clear line between who has more power. The premier... Who was the um the, the head of the um?
0: We all know ex- we pre- all know the real power was in Jiang Kaisi's son Zhang Jingguo. Yeah,
1: yeah. Jiang yeah. Jingguo was the was the premier, and the lines blur between like who's actually more powerful—the premier or the president. But ever since ever since Jiang Jingguo became the so-called president, became the leader, it's always been the like the so-called president. Anyways, Jiang Jingguo becomes the the so-called president, right? And he has a heavy emphasis on economic development because, and then there was a officially there's like a government shift towards Ben Red. Oh, I, I want to add. So, you know why Taiwan was called democratic even though there were no elections?
0: Yes, yes, talk about that.
1: So, um, there were the the so called president was elected by the so called National Assembly, but and Chiang Kai Shek was elected by the National Assembly in. Um, in the 19, in the late 1940s before he retreated to taiwan but because um the roc government on taiwan only had control of taiwan they were just like well our country is not unified and we only have control of a small section of the territory so we cannot have um nationwide elections so the, in theory the the um the representatives in the so-called national assembly are elected by the people and then the the representatives in the national assembly elect the so-called president But because of the whole civil war situation and the whole, you know, government, like kind of the political realities, they were just like, well, we don't have control of the mainland. So elections will resume once we recapture the mainland. So for now, it's just going to be
0: appointed. So basically the same people who were in the parliament, uh, they froze the election, right? The last election that was held on mainland, what, in 1947? And, and something like that, that. and that was an election where the kmt kind of engineered to be the anti-communist election like the the communists and the other opposition are,
1: yeah, um, the power, communist,
0: power. communists and other uh, communist adjacent party were excluded for, from that election so that so that the, you know all the candidate all the communist candidate that that kind of kind of just uh, you know got got elected into the 1947 parliament got kind of grandfathered in for life. <laughs> and,
1: and yeah, so this is kind of, this is also why people in Taiwan felt that um they weren't in control of their government because it was all just people who came from the mainland after, like after the, um the, 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 the um the so called ROC government
0: was uh, retreated to Taiwan and and Jiang Kai She also implement a uh, very hardcore integrationist uh, policy on Taiwan right because uh you know on mainland China Mandarinization yeah on mainland China like I uh, you, you can be whatever ethnicity you know and and still you know you, you learn man standard Mandarin in school but you know you're we still my experience growing up in China in nineteen 19- 80s is that uh, we we learned standard mandarin in school but after you know in class outside of the class during recess during the rest of the time we all speak our local language right like that's the, you know speaking standard mandarin did not mean like eradication of local language on mainland china
1: but it, it didn't necessarily mean that in taiwan either but it was also it was also a very heavy-handed process. So what happened was they just ordered directives saying, okay, um, of the few like TV stations that we have, a certain amount of hours on like a certain ratio of the channels have to be in Mandarin. Well So then it was like a, a sudden. It was a sudden process. So then there were instances of like certain like um dramas that were like in Hokkien, but then one day they just turned into Mandarin, and the actors couldn't even speak good Mandarin. Well,
0: my my point my my point is. When I grew up in 1980s China, nobody beat me in school because I didn't speak standard Mandarin. right? teacher is not gonna beat me up for for um, not speaking standard Mandarin in school. You know, we only speak yeah. standard Mandarin during class. Outside the class, we speak our our own language. Nobody cared. Uh, uh, Richard, do you have a question?
3: Yeah. So there's a thing, like. That that man, mandatory Mandarin it was not enforced by the Communist Party. That was enforced by, you know, the the I guess the elites in Taiwan. Am I right? Yes, it's by Jiang Kai She. So you know that's the thing. Like you know, people want to blame like the, the you know the Communist Party of China when you know like when people the people are doing that kind of stuff is are, it's not them. You know. So that's it's my observation right here. So yeah.
1: Well, because of uh, like the market reforms in the mainland, there have been more like economic incentives for people who before prior might have not had too many incentives to learn Mandarin. Like they will feel pressure to learn Mandarin because if they don't, they they have less opportunities. There is that factor.
0: Yeah, yeah. You will admit. Because when I was growing up in 1980s, even like the only time I will use standard Mandarin is during class hours. And uh, if there was somebody from outside of my hometown or home province. So then we have to use standard Mandarin to communicate, but there's very, there's very small occasions really like, but after 1990s, there's a lot of movement, you know, a lot of people, for example, from my hometown, Sichuan, they moved to the coast to look for jobs in places like Shanghai or Guangdong, right? So when all the peoples are moving around in China, they're, they can only communicate with each other with standard Mandarin because obviously they would not be able to speak Shanghainese or Cantonese or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this and is
2: Taiwan- just. Another, oh, I'm sorry. I was just gonna say this is just another seems to me like another projection of like colonizer logic, right? Is that you know they they say obviously the the majority or the dominant language um, because of what we've experienced here in the United States is you know. Exactly what's going on over there, you know, they're forcing people to learn uh, Mandarin Chinese, right? Like it's that idea of like of like Han supremacy. Uh, but as you mentioned earlier, Carl, like how you know ninety something percent of Tibet is actual actual Tibetans, right? And uh, like the Han are the minority there. And I was uh, looking at something earlier. Um, you know, the the Han students at this uh, middle school there actually had to learn and participate in. Uh, Tibetan culture, yes, and that other stuff, you know, the other way around, yes.
1: And um, another thing is, the Tibetan language was only standardized after um the its liberation. Before, like there, were, like you know, the different classes, like there were like the serfs, there were like the lamas and stuff. They they spoke differently. I don't know. I don't know. Oh how to well, all actually, all the yeah, part. yeah.
0: The, I mean, they standardized to uh, like. Because t- t- like people think of Tibet, they think it's like this monolithic uh, cultural entity. But in fact, there's actually a lot of uh, different linguistic diversity in Tibet itself. Well, what people normally speak of Tibetan as today are the the languages spoken in Lhasa, you know, the capital of Tibet, of Central Tibet. You know, back in the days, you know, people obviously would speak their own like own local language, like like. People in Eastern Tibet in calm, they will speak their own uh, uh, language of calm, which is you know sometimes is mutually unintelligible with the uh, with language in in Central Tibet. So so yeah, Tibetan also went through a, a a same process of standardization, like how standard Mandarin was made to be the common language among all people in China. Whereas in the Tibetan area, the the the, the Central Tibetan spoken in Lhasa was taught in. Tibetan schools, all all the in all over the Tibetan regions, but that's a like kind of different different situation. And 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 like Joseph said, there's a lot of projection. You know, there's a lot of American exceptionalism because a lot of white Americans just because they're more familiar with U.S. You know, less so with China, so they just naturally assume whatever U.S. is doing, China must be doing doing also, you know, I, I encounter a lot of this kind of logic. They say, well, you know, because U.S. Uh, is an imperialist power, uh, you know, so when China becomes powerful, you must also adopt, you know, the same U.S. imperialist policy. I'm like, no, <laughs> about no? Like, like there's not nothing says that. It only works because that's your mentality, that, that ev- the whole world operate on the same wavelengths as like <laughs> as a an Anglo white Anglo Saxon Protestant uh, <laughs> political elite. But that that's not how, how the world works. You know, people people think differently. <laughs> people operate differently. Okay, that's enough of my rant. Go 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 ahead. Back to you, Xiaomi.
3: Yeah,
1: um so it- just to add to that, the first Tibetan typewriters were developed by the Communist Party of China, by the way. Anyways, in Taiwan, what happened was if you didn't speak, if you got caught speaking like any other language or dialect from Mandarin at school, you would get fined, like money fine. <laughs> Like that's that that's the difference. Like uh, Carl never got. It. I'm, I'm sure Carl spoke. Like sitting in class when he's not paying attention to the teacher, as a kid, he'll turn to his classmate and start speaking in his own dialect. Right?
0: You did that. Yeah, of course. And and to this day, Shangyu still make fun of my uh, man, standard Mandarin accent.
1: I don't make fun <laughs> of it. I just I I, I, I like the Southeast Mandarin accent. <laughs> it's so fine. It's like, fine. Because yeah, I know very, I know you endearing. speak with
0: a Taiwan accent too. So we're even.
1: <laughs> it goes <laughs> in and it goes in and out. I can I, I can speak standard Mandarin better. If I wanted to,
0: <laughs> and I, and I do, and on certain occasions, <laughs> yeah. Anyways,
1: it's it's like code switching. Anyways, um, there um, there was like the ten like under Zhang Jingguo, so Chang Kaijia's son. There was like the ten major construction projects, um, and it just like kind of just the industrial base, like the ports and like highway and that sort of stuff. Um. Anyways, as industry was being upgraded in Japan. Taiwan started doing more low-level manufacturing for Japanese companies and this was like kind of the um the driving the driving force of the so-called um, the economic miracle that happened in Taiwan. And at the same time, like Chiang kai was trying to like kind of reconcile the um the animosities between the different groups of um Han Chinese people on Taiwan. So he had this he was actively bringing more Ben Shengren into higher levels of power. And, and um so there was there, there was this um there, there was this policy that that was called um "Chou Tai Tai kind of means like kind of promoting the Ta- the the policy of promoting the Taiwanese youth. By the way, like the white up until the 90s weren't seen by either themselves or like by um, as Taiwanese people. So like Chiang Kai-shek was for all inter- intents and purposes in the mainland, they would be like, Ah, he's on Taiwan, he's Taiwanese now. But in Taiwan, like, no, like people like him and his son and his grandson were not seen as Taiwanese. They were seen as like white Anyways, so um there was 随台情政策, the, the on the policy of kind of promoting the Taiwanese youth, or as I like to um or, or as I like to describe it for the Chinese listeners, Hui Taiwan Anyways, they brought in the likes of people like Li Donghui Wu Duyni, and Wu um, Bo into the higher echelons of the KMT. So these are like Ben ren who went into, got into high positions of the KMT. And, and these, these people,
0: the, and Li Denhui, etc., they all came from like the the local uh, aristocracy, right? The land, land gentry that, that was yes. kind of in power in, in Taiwan before. So this is basically KMT attempt to co-op the local elite, Uh, you know kind of like uh, get them also to to kind of power sharing arrangement right
1: we have like a two-hour episode on Li Donghui alone because he died and we wanted to just kind of cash in on his death (laughs) it's like the best thing he's it's like the best thing he's contributed to so I'm just kidding anyways um at the end of the day though um the the um the so-called Republic of China on Taiwan was still a military dictatorship and um the martial law was still in effect, and then, then, um, as, as you know, on January first, nineteen seventy nine, after a decade of uh, like, well, not not a full decade, but you know, like of warming up with like Nixon's visits and whatever, the U.S. and the PRC established formal ties, and the U.S. stopped recognizing the so-called Republic of China as the legitimate Chinese government, though it still supported the the. um the the, um, the the regime on Taiwan through more less official, at a less official capacity. Like that's when the Taiwan Relations Act was passed and stuff, which basically maintained the status quo from before, but just without the formal ties. And so, like I said, the KMT's power source was kind of, base of power was two things, military and also US support. And this change of the international situation, the diplomatic situation deprived the KMT of one of its final like power bases. So, at this time over the course of the 1970s, the petty bourgeois um like intellectual shengren began calling for the re- the redistribution of political power and but um notice how all of their demands were in the political arena and not economic, which is typical for um political movements led by, you know, the petty bourgeoisie. So, like which includes color revolutions. You look at like the five demands at the Hong Kong um, protests. None of the none of the demands are economic at all, and, and like they're even stupid demands. Like we don't want to be called rioters, anyways. So the demands are democratization, localization. So localization has like more like look like um benchstone representation and in government independence. These became common themes in the discourse, and this was a great challenge to the KMT's authority because. um, Back then, it effectively suppressed communists in the past by, you know, like heavy handed tactics like killing, imprisonment and whatever. But also it knew how to buy off the, the blue collar working class and kind of knew how to work with the um, the Sung elite. But it didn't really have experience dealing with a new like middle class liberal opposition. It's a different beast than like buying off the labor aristocracy, for example. And during that time, a lot of magazines were set up. It was like a cat and mouse game between the magazines and the KMT banning them. So like what happened would be like you could have a publication that like a magazine that's anti-KMT and then that would get banned. But the way it's banned is its license gets banned. So what, what they would do was they would just set up a new license under a new name. But like the new name would be like obvious enough that you could tell that it's the same magazine and you, could, you would know what happened you know so and then this culminated in the in the um the Formosa Magazine incident or called the Gaosheng incident so Formosa Magazine was one of those um kind of anti kmt um ma- magazines publications it held a commemoration event on the International Human Rights Day and there was a clash between the um, civilians and the police which was the greatest ever since the February 28th incident in 1947 so organizers of the magazine were arrested in sentence. So they are Shi Mingde, Huang Huang Xinjie, uh, Lin Li Xiong, Lu Xiong, Or uh, Lu was the vice um, the vice leader when Chen Shui was leader. By the way, Chen Ju, former mayor of Kaohsiung, uh, Zhang Junhong, Yao Jiawen, Lin Hongxuan, and all of these people except for Lin Hongxuan were DPP chairman at some point. So. During this time, there was something called the Dangwai movement or the the move, the extra party, the outside of the party movement. Because um, parties besides the KMT were still banned, but you were allowed to be, you, you were allowed to join government as an independent. So they had this sort of coalition. It was like a party without a party. Like they weren't called, they, they weren't a formal party, but they, they they had a little united front going on. Anyways, the defense team of this sort of incident uh Jiang Pengjian, Chen Sui Bian Chen Shui was the former um leader of Taiwan from 2000 to 2008 by the way. Xie Changting, he's the current um diplomat so, working in Japan. So
0: Xiang Yu, I'm sorry to kind of hurry this along. Um uh, but I think the the, the main point is uh, that you know there was this petty bourgeois uh, opposition from the new creative professional class in Taiwan to the KMT rule. And then the, you know, and then with, um, with the, uh, uh, the end of Zhang Jingguo era on Taiwan, there was a relaxation on the political atmosphere in Taiwan, right? After with a, with a lifting uh, of martial law and stuff. And so eventually those, those, uh, the liberal opposition to KMT the, the the people who participated in the Formosa Incident magazine incident these people formed the core of the new uh kind of opposition party DPP right the, which is the democratic progressive party right and and the, the incumbent party now yes and the democrat the dpp the main their main platform right is always kind of independence but but by independence, i mean by independence they, they uh they they're saying we're going to change the name from Republic of China to Republic of Taiwan right to declare because they're not
1: against capitalism so they have no problems with the existing class relations in Taiwan
0: Exactly exactly right?
1: but they but they're against the KMT but they're against the KMT because they felt that Ben which were, tra- were mistreated by Wei Tseng and there's truth to that there definitely is truth to that Yeah yeah. But that's that's the extent of their opposition. And um, whereas the KMT kind of instilled this whole sort of um, Chinese nationalism in the population, that's at the end of the day, when the DPP, if your class politics are the same, the only thing left you got left to set yourself apart is identity politics yes um that's so i think we're now we're just going to go into like the Li era and like kind of condense it into like three to five minutes yeah yeah what, what yeah because
0: there. because like i think that's a very important uh is uh, the end of cold war right so so u.s supported all these military dictatorship from south korea to taiwan to you know south vietnam during the cold war um and then uh, you know, at the end of the Cold War, there was kind of a. Um, uh, on one hand, there's like a real domestic opposition, like in, in, in both in South Korea and, and Taiwan to the military dictatorship. And on the top of that, the, the, the U.S. had to kind of justify its uh, it, 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 it can no longer saying it's sufficient to be. Uh, anti-communist you have to also have some kind of the democratic credential right kind of the democratic mandate so so that's this this kind of perfect combination um uh, prompted kind of the taiwan uh so-called the taiwan democratization right can you talk about that a little bit shangyu
1: basically because of all this mounting pressure and because of like the changing um kind of there there's a growing like petty bourgeois class in Taiwan. this is like this sets the stage ripe right for um kind of the best way to maintain the status quo at this point without like a without like a um a formidable leftist opposition would just be bourgeois democracy. and they call um Li Donghui, the um the successor to Zhang Jingguo by the way. The father of democracy, or Mister Democracy, and we mentioned on Carl's show that we don't agree with that. He's more Mister um, Mr. Liberalism, Mister Neoliberalism. So what basically what Taiwan transformed into was a like a bourgeois, like a two party system, and um, it was around that time when the shift from like identifying as Chinese kind of began. Be, it began to be a little bit more mainstream, especially around the turn of the century. Because um, our, our theory that we came up with was um, the logical conclusion to the Chinese nationalism that Chiang Kai-shek and Zhang Jingguo instilled was that, okay, we're Chinese, and now we're seeing mainland China doing well. And as Chinese people, we feel proud of that, and we're willing to better understand them and, hey, maybe even reunify under under their banner. And let, let history be history and, you know, work together for a better Chinese future. But the problem with this is this would change the status quo of Taiwan in relation to the United States as a client state. So when people say that, oh, nowadays they call themselves Taiwanese and not Chinese, and that's like a break. Oh, I, I think. In some ways, it is an ideological break from the KMT. But as we're looking at ruptures from the past, we also need to look at continuities. What stayed the same? What stayed the same was Taiwan's status as a client state of the US and um, being part of the first island chain that surrounds, you know, like Russia, China, and it serves US geopolitical purposes. Wouldn't you agree,
0: Carl? Yeah, I want to add to that. I mean there, there's also a lot of bought-in from the local population. Um I mean I can um I came into United States in 1990. Uh I at the time I had a a classmate in my ESL class. She is from Taiwan and she was already like, yeah, okay, yeah, we are uh, sort of, you know, overall Chinese, but I am Taiwanese. And like she's very insistent to insist Uh, on her Taiwan identity and I I grew to understand why because even in 1990 mainland China was still a very uh, poor place compared to Taiwan because you know Taiwan had um, many years of development especially it was included in in part of like a a, um, U.S. camp because as as a U.S. client state U.S. opened its market to the Taiwanese manufacturing, to the Taiwanese product, and you also did a lot initial phase of outsourcing to Taiwan. So Taiwan were able to kind of enjoy sort of a trickle down prosperity from the United States, um, whereas in 1990 China was still kind of coming out of the uh, 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 turmoil for Cultural rev- uh, Revolution. It was still kind of putting its house backing order to trying to do economic reforms and, and further opening up. So because the mainland Chinese tend to be poor, a lot poorer than people from Taiwan, the people from Taiwan, they don't want to be associated. This is this applies to the same way to some you know Hong Kong youth as well. Because they did not want to be associated with these their poor mainland Chinese cousins. You know, because there's a lot there's an element of uh, oh, OK, actually heavy element of classism, classism as well, because they they feel they're a kind of, sort of um, a form of a better Chinese or uh, take it to extreme, a better form of Asian than the mainland Chinese people. And and because, you know, as we, we know, you uh, know, uh, Living, in, we all have experienced living in North America. People here, here, basically have trouble distinguishing people from East Asia, and they they get frustrated to explain the difference. That you no, know, they're they're from Taiwan. They're not mainland Chinese, so it's a lot easier just say. I am Taiwanese to, to mark themselves as different from, say, the, the the mainland Chinese Chinese. And
1: interestingly, though separatism was not popular until the second half of the 2000s, I
0: would say. Oh yeah, yeah uh, sh- yes. But at that time, you know, there was already that girl that insists on saying, "Oh, I'm from Formosa." I'm like, what the hell? What the fuck is Formosa? That's Formosa <laughs> is a freaking Portuguese name. Why you use that? You know, why you using a colonizer name? to Call Taiwan when, when like, I guess Taiwan was seen not cool enough because it's still like Chinese, right? Whereas Formosa is a foreign language name, it sounds cool. Um, and 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 then there, there's a lot of that, right? Like, in 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 US, like they call it the Formosan, uh, a Formosan friendship or society or whatever. Um, no, it's
1: FAPA Formosan. Association Association for Public Affairs or something, yes, something like that. Yes, yes,
0: and and I call it FAP to America. Yeah, and also in also in another factor that in 1990 was uh, at that time, uh, Republic of China on Taiwan still kind of claimed to re- represent uh, you know all of China, so you still had like outreach program to the ch- overseas Chinese community like y- in United States. I remember when I lived in Chicago around uh, October 10th, the founding days of Republic of China, there will be Republic of China flags flying all over Chicago Chinatown, right? So when I first came to Chicago in 1990, I was like, oh shit, I'm in the enemy territory here. <laughs> I learned to... <laughs> uh, can I add something to that? Yeah, go ahead.
1: I see a lot of people online just making fun of like, oh, haha, Taiwan. They call themselves like the real China, but they only have this part of the land. Like, haha, that's so ridiculous. But and then they they and they try to like associate that with separatism for some reason. But the the hardline separatists reject the so-called Republic of China. If you've been following along within this episode, and uh, honestly, the whole like, oh, like we're the sole rep- legitimate government of China. That was a point of unity between. The KMT and the CCP, because it's like okay, this well, what that means is China is one, but there's two administrative regions because of an unconcluded like issue. They disagree. And that's the on domestic Russia issue,
0: China. Right. That, that's and a, that's an
1: issue for Chinese people to decide, not for foreigners to decide. Yeah,
0: but whereas like back in down to 1990 2000, there's a realization in Taiwan that. Actually, China is not going to collapse, despite what Gordon Chan says in his book. Uh, And and so, so, you know, now we're going to stuck with a situation where China is getting stronger and stronger, uh, but we don't really want to reunify with China because we are more comfortable with kind of living as a U.S. client state, you know, because also a lot of urban petty bourgeois, you know, they... They subscribe to kind of the American Western pop culture. Uh, and you know, they, they they watch friends, you know, kind of the boba liberals. And and they 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 want to distance themselves from mainland China, which they actually see as backward. Uh, at least back in
1: It's like a societal level of the whole like you know how you have some like A B C school and no, I'm not Chinese, I'm American, my parents are Chinese. Yes. Yeah. It's like that same logic, but you apply it to a whole society. Exactly. That that's
3: part yeah.
0: of the best way to I, put it.
3: I have Go ahead, I, Richard. I, yeah, I have family members that have said that. Like, you know, like even my own brother, he said he, he said, um, I'm a Chinese, I'm American. I'm like, uh <laughs> what the fuck are you saying? <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's not going to stop you from being called a chink
0: by racists. Exactly, Sorry. exactly. <laughs> to, to other people, in their eyes, you're still Chinese foremost. I mean, that's actually something my dad told me when I first came to the United States in 1990. He said, well, Sung, you know, like you, you should, uh, you know, watch how you behave because people see you, they don't see you as an individual. They see you as... Uh, as just as just Chinese, so whatever you do, all your action will reflect on the whole Chinese nation. At that time, I was like, "Holy shit, that's a heavy responsibility." But you know, it did kind of have the effect of moderating my my acts.
1: That's why you became such a like a, a surfer chat because you wanted to make them. Um, you wanted to be the cool
0: representation <laughs> of my
2: people. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean there was a that tweet by uh by the senator Blackburn, right? Uh, Marsha Blackburn. She just tweeted out uh you know five thousand years. Yeah yeah, China has been liars and cheaters for five thousand years of their history, right? And and like they, she doesn't even pretend that she likes the Chinese people. Just, just don't like the government anymore. She, she just straight up saying all Chinese people are cheers and liars. And, and I appreciate that honesty. Uh, yeah I mean like I, I bet you represent probably me- mentality a lot of uh, her constituents who voted her into the office and, and Marco Rubio came in defense of her yeah of course of well, course it's, because, it's ironic uh,
3: too because like the whole premise of the US government is is on settler colonization genocide enslavement in less than 200 years of history right but yeah she wants to talk about Chinese history which it just was very blame racist. It to me, it's ironic. And Americans are fucking stupid, but whatever. Oh, yeah. We we all agree, 100% agreement on that.
0: So let, let, let's come back to Taiwan, uh, uh, Xiang Yu. So we, we are basically at a point we, we have talked about how kind of the democratic trend, so-called democratic transition on Taiwan. And I also feel like it's kind of a, a issue of acquiring that legitimate uh that legitimacy right the mantle of legitimacy of democracy that's why uh prompted the denhui to have the democratic election on taiwan which because because you know the the, the military anti communist be just being anti-communist military dictatorship was not enough anymore. They 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 needed something more to justify the continued U.S. support, right? So so now, oh look, Taiwan is a unique case of. Uh, a first case of democracy in a Chinese society in thousands of years, you know, of course, U S is obligated have a moral responsibility to defend Taiwan. A lot of the, you know, heritage foundation and then the other like neocon think tanks, they, they literally spout that line. You know, we must, the U S must shed blood and treasure to defend Taiwan. You know, the, the only democracy in the Chinese speaking world or or something to that effect.
1: Uh, it's funny how pseudo leftists also have the same view, like fucking that that bad China takes guy.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, because he's white. Um, <laughs> he, he works at a DC think tank too. Yes, yes, um, uh, yes. I piece of shit. Uh, quote quote leftist, um, and yeah. That, so so there's there's that. I think there's a there, the, the element of classicism. They don't wish to be associated with those poor Chinese people. Who they they uh, they also quickly realize are kind of the markouts as political enemy in in US. Maybe they don't want to wish to be associated with a uh, with a state that often view with hostility hostility in US because of the decades of Cold War propaganda, right? I mean,
1: interestingly though, wait, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Another thing I want to mention is pivot to Asia. That also. Field the flame because prior to pivot to Asia, you know you had you had a, a more separatist leaning leader Chen Shui-bian from 2000 to 2008. But when he campaigned, he had to promise that he would not change this, append the status quo, and would not move Taiwan towards independence. And even then, he didn't win with the majority of the votes. It was because um, the, the the KMT camp was split because um, over some disagreements. So then they ended up having like a new party was formed it was called the People first party and that guy was the most popular and the KMT candidate was like kind of you know not too popular. that's that's how the DPP won um, the leadership for the first time. It didn't even win with it with a majority and it had to promise that it would not pursue independence. but and that was and then in 2008 because Chen Fabian was so corrupt and he got like caught like embezzling a, a lot of money and um putting it in a Swiss bank. Oh, he tried to justify that by saying, oh, he's setting up a fund for independence. But that's because th- by that point, the only support he had left were from like the hardline separatists. So he that, w- that was just like the rhetoric. That, but that's I, a, I seriously doubt he gives a fuck about independence. Yeah, that's the
0: thing. That's a feature with a DPP uh, uh, party in Taiwan. Their party platform is supposedly for independence. Yet whenever they're in power, they actually never... Uh, move toward independence because, as we all know, you know that decision does not rest with government of Taiwan. That rests with government of United States. <laughs>
1: that they do little things. They, they they do little things like okay, we're going to change the name of this to like we're going to add Taiwan to the name of certain things. We're we're going to change the um we're going to try to change. I'm um, like um so the um the postal service in Taiwan is called Zhonghua Youzheng, which means like Zhonghua Post or which Basically, just means China Post or Chinese Post. Yeah, the Chen Shui Bian changed it to um, Taiwan Post, Taiwan Yiu-Zheng, but then it got changed back when Ma Jo became leader. Uh, but They do little things like that. But
0: they it's a, one thing he was able to successfully do, though, Chen Shui Bian, is uh, the, uh, he led a de-signification campaign in the education system, basically to de-emphasize. Uh, the identification with china and and, and you know boosting history and culture in the curriculum uh, and emphasize on local taiwan identity and that that change was more permanent like can, that i think that also helped kind of foster the the separate uh, taiwan identity after 2000. Yes, Ying-jeou never changed that when he became leader. Yeah. Yeah so that that so that's why also make another uh, explanation for the shift away from the chinese identity because on, on the chinese mainland uh, the point is you can't be you can maintain a local identity and an overall Chinese identity. There's no, there's no conflict. You know, I'm I can be a person from Chongqing. I can be you know speaker of Sichuanese and still Chinese. There's no, there's no contradiction between the two. It's just a different layers of identity on top of each other. But in Taiwan, because that's how I feel. Yeah, because Taiwan it became a political issue, right? So, so, how, what to identify with, and 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 DPP found out to play identity politics is the best way to win votes, you know, to do the divide and conquer. If you divide the people based on, on their identity, and you, you 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 say that KMT represents the party of the mainlanders, you know, who only compose of like, what, the 16%, 15% of the overall population, you get... It breeds insecurity too. Yeah, yeah. Insecure people are easier to rule. Yes, and then they... they and and then what we see is kind of this this, this shift. Uh, uh, maybe you, I don't know, do you want to expo- expand on that, Shang Yu, or do you want to move on?
1: A little bit. So like even when, um, around, it was around that time, like maybe like by 2008, there was a bigger portion of Taiwanese youth who would say like, I'm Taiwanese, I'm not Chinese. Whereas in the past, like around even in the 90s, it was like, uh, we're both, we're Chinese and we're Taiwanese, you know? And we're proud of being both. But but at the same time, um, uh, when my angel first became leader, his platform was um kind of warming up a little bit more with the mainland and forming more economic ties and um finally lifting the limit like the restrictions on travel and stuff. So then the three direct links. So like it's like post telecommunication it's post um air and what was what's the third one?
0: Air, water, um... Oh, it's on
1: post-transportation and trade. So before all of this, if you wanted to fly from Taiwan to mainland China, you had to have a flight transfer in Hong Kong and then you have layovers and stuff. Whereas, you know, if you tried to fly from Taiwan to Shanghai, it's not that long of a flight, but it, with the increased flight transfer, it turned that, it turns like a what, two, three hour flight into a whole day ordeal. And then there was also like, before 2008, mainlanders couldn't, really visit taiwan that changed under um, angel so there was that sort of hey um it's good where the two sides are getting closer there's less like animosity and we're gonna approach like mutual understanding and now there's even mainlanders coming to taiwan to study and liberals like kind of portray that as oh they're coming to learn about democracy whatever but pivot to asia happens and that's around the time not too long afterwards you had the sunflower movement
0: so pivot to asia this was happened under obama right pioneered by hillary clinton when she was the secretary of state yeah
1: yes and that's when like a new wave of people entered politics and like for example the new power party so people some like some like like pseudo leftists might look at them and be like, oh, they're kind of like leftists because they're for like they're for human rights and they're for like you know a little bit more work workers power. They're for LGBT stuff. They're for they're, they're for diversity and what whatnot. But they also don't challenge U.S. imperialism. It's it's like you know the it's kind of like um you know Maidan
0: in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I feel like a lot of, uh, uh, so kind of a lot of the the switch in identity also because um, it, it, the, the people who hold these views usually are kind of the professional class or the petty bourgeois who identify more with um, kind of the U.S. narrative and the U.S. US value systems and and they Mm -hmm. they are themselves oh joseph you have a question go ahead
2: oh yeah um i mean speaking uh kind of as like an extension to pivot to asia is uh i guess like i'm curious where like taiwan stands today in regards to like the indo-pacific strategy um or like uh china's belt and road initiative oh yeah um, so uh, whatever China is for, we're against. Whatever the U.S. is for, we support. Exactly, that's that's
0: a Taiwan policy, <laughs> and 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 that includes buying spend massive amount buying kind of a degraded uh, second class or uh, you know useless U.S. weaponry, right? Uh, I mean, like what what the hell? What Taiwan is going to use tanks for right i mean like
1: See, Chiang kai shek was a bastard but at least he had the dignity to say hey i know you're using me because you're extending your defense line out to the pacific against the communists so you don't have to worry about them like and like in your territory so since since like i'm doing some of your bidding you're gonna give me the fucking weapons i'm not paying for them yeah, t- like nowadays, he Taiwan- had that decency. But like now, Taiwan, now the DPP is just so like, oh, we want to be friends. You know, we want to show that we can, like, you know, play by the rules, and we want to, like, well, yeah, To be honest, what- they, were, they weren't. They aren't really given the choice. Well, but like yeah. they'll, they're they're kind of coerced into buying weapons from the U.S. And then the DPP will just be like, yeah, it's because we're um, strengthening our ties with the U.S. And by the way the KMT the the Ma ying government bought more weapons from the US than the Chen Shui-bian government so don't think the KMT is like the more like uh, it's like that different from yeah. the DPP it's the, not the, the overall trend the weapon the weapon the arms deals have been increasing, like regardless of who was in office. Yeah. If Han Goyi won this year instead of Tsai Ing-wen, there would still be more purchases yeah. than before. I mean,
0: KMT, the two, so, so-called two-party system in Taiwan, really in a lot of ways mirrors a two-party system in the United States, right? I mean, they're basically both uh, represent the capital class and, and they're, they they just have minor agreement, but it's really the same, same class of people of, uh, Fighting for the for the limited pie, and and uh, 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 and there really is there's no difference. Either no real difference in their uh, in their uh, uh, policy toward mainland China. Both are status quo parties. Both want to maintain kind of the separate Taiwan status from mainland China. Continue to function as a U.S. client state in East Asia. You know, so they just market it differently. Exactly, exactly. Like, like the, the KMT might make some conciliatory uh, noises to our mainland, and whereas you know K uh, DPP are more um, you know doing more ship posting, but in the end, what? But-
1: a lot of DPP supporters like are capitalists and even those capitalists still have business
0: interests in mainland China. Yes, because mainland China, they, they, since 1980s, they decided on a policy. If you build it, they will come, right? They actually welcome Taiwan capital to invest in the mainland uh, market and they, they open up the, the, the mainland Chinese market to them. So you have these class of Chi- Taiwan capitalists that go to mainland because they, they could make money there. But at the same time, you know, they still found all these like uh, pro-independence parties back home.
1: <laughs> like there, there was like this kind of misconception in mainland China that, Oh, like these Taiwanese people are our friends because they're coming here and doing business and getting to know us. No, Mao's, Mao was right like, um closeness, um, it's class that determines, like, um friendship.
0: Yeah, and, and like I said, a lot of this kind of uh, distinction they want to make between themselves and the mainland Chinese is uh, there's a heavy dose of classicism because they feel like literally they're a better, uh, uh, better class of of East Asians who are more integrated with Western culture, who are better integrated in the kind of the Western imperial system, right? Then say these uh, mainland Chinese people who subscribe to a different ideology.
1: If um, another funny thing is if the KMT goes to mainland China and works out a deal for like Taiwanese capitalists, they're labeled as um like sellouts of Taiwan yeah. and like, but if the dpp does the same thing which they do then they're um then <laughs> then they're like it's said that they're um fighting for they're fighting for Taiwan's interests in the belly of the beast. Yes,
0: yes. Um yeah, I mean really it's it's just stupid identity politics. Um but maybe we can spend the issue a,
1: between Taiwan and the, the Taiwan issue, you cannot look at it just like in a vacuum like, oh it's just a Taiwan issue. No, it's always it's it's always been a manifestation of Sino-US contradictions. Yes.
0: Um maybe we can spend a little bit of time about the present state of indigenous communities on Taiwan. Because uh, you know, like, like I, we, I mentioned earlier, they have been heavily marginalized. You know, they live in marginal lands in the mountains, um, and and the, there was actually a, a, a indigenous legislator who went to mainland in the two thousands, um, and she was basically saying, yeah, you know, you know how the mainland China have these autonomous uh, regions for. For uh, ethnic minorities, is she said we, we also demand, you know, uh, indigenous autonomous regions on Taiwan. And of course, you know, like in Taiwan media, she's accused of being a uh, 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 selling out Kipun. Taiwan. Yeah. <laughs> and, and but but what she says makes perfect sense to me. It's like, yes, why can't she demand an uh, indigenous autonomous zone in Taiwan where indigenous languages are preserved and guaranteed a, a place? Uh, in the education system, I mean that's perfect perfectly reasonable demands, but like,
1: can I tell an anecdote about about that? Yeah, go ahead. I have um, a friend in Taiwan, and sh- her family is like kind of just a little bit more like DPP leaning. And we went to we, we went to um, Yenji together, which is um the the seat of the Korean autonomous prefecture of Yanbian which is in China's um mainland China's Jilin
0: province next to the uh, Korean border yeah DPRK yeah yeah
1: yeah well we actually did go to the DPRK too we went to um anyways she was just I felt I, I could feel that it kind of um she was a little bit surprised that there was like that much like bilingual signage and how like korean was also given official status and how if you wanted to you could live there and not speak a word of mandarin and get by fine yeah because that's not what we're told in taiwan we're told like oh over there like um it's like everything's like you're forced to become like part of like you're you're forced to become like a um a, a monolithic form
0: of like China, yeah you're like forced to speak and, standard mandarin and you see you're dominated by the han supremacy yeah that, that's kind of the. here's
1: one here's one thing if you look at people our age you take a random sample right just of anybody in mainland china and it includes people outside of major cities by the way you pick anyone born after let's say 19 1980 or 1990 chances are the person you pick from taiwan is going to speak like more standard mandarin than like someone in ba- someone in like mainland China it's just we don't have that impression because on tv we see people from like the city centers and stuff but population wise and stuff if you end up picking somebody and there's a great chance you'll pick up somebody from like a middle of nowhere village yeah their mandarin is not going to be as good
0: yeah yeah i mean like the the standard mandarin is really getting more popularized on the mainland like in the last 20 years i would say um yeah. like so the joseph R- Richard, Richard, do you guys have any question? I, I I'm gonna run to the bathroom real quick. If you guys have any questions, uh, hold on that thought thought, and maybe we'll have a question and answer session at the end. And meantime, whatever you want to add, Ang Shangyu is your chance. I'll be right back.
1: I think um yeah, this is a good point. I think we kind of gave um a ver- uh, it's a lot more detailed than I expected of the um the general historical background of Taiwan. Yeah, I have a question. So, um-
3: yeah. So I, I, during one of your episodes with um, Carl, you talked about uh, Taiwanese that are kind of like uh, uh, influenced through Japanese culture. I think it's like Japanized or some some word you say like that. You know, like do you feel like yeah. those type of people or that does does Japanese culture or or those type of people do they promote the separation of Taiwan or is it just does not It doesn't matter?
1: I, I talked about that today. I didn't I didn't use the word Japanified or um Japanized because um I used the Chinese and Japanese term um Guangming uh movement or Communist movement. But um that happened during Japanese colonization. And um to be certain there are remnants of that. I mean, the the former leader, like Li Denghui, is a good example. Like, he's very pro-Japan. He grew up under that system and he goes to, he, before he died, he would go to Japan and give speeches about, like, friendship between Japan and Taiwan, even though, even though the relationship was that between colonized and colonizer. But he would say things like, oh yeah, Japan did, did so much good in Taiwan and built Taiwan up and we're friends and we're and Taiwan is um, a true democracy and we're friends
0: both Li Denhui and his older brother volunteered not drafted but volunteered to be part of the imperial Japanese military in World War II so that says something about them
1: so um yeah he he, um he, he was asking about what whether or not um that the sort of um Japanese influence on Taiwan, like the the more um, I think there was some confusion because I think um when we talked about Huang Hua Yun Dong on your show, I I also I alternated between calling it Ming Hua Dong and like Japanification, and I think maybe he was under the impression that Japanification happens like today. It's not actively pursued, but there is um a, among a lot of the youth there is um quite a bit of cultural affinity towards Japan. Like most people, like the uh, uh, one of the most popular tourist
0: destinations is Japan. Yeah. I mean, like Japan, Japan, okay. After Japan uh, developed, uh, especially post-World War II, it has a lot of cultural soft power in East Asia, right? Because people saw like a fellow Asian state, but with a high standard of living, Um, you know, so, so, so Japan has that kind of uh, soft power purchase in places, even where I live, like Indonesia. I mean, but in Taiwan, it's a, a kind of people saw them like people kind of artificially create this romantic uh, linkage between the the past colonial <laughs> history with Japan uh, to see themselves as to have some kind of special relationship with Japan. But in Japan, the Japanese just see the Taiwanese as Chinese in most cases.
1: <laughs> Here's the thing. Another thing is um, I, I I saw this post on Twitter from this, like, woman. I don't know who she is, but she's a dumbass. She said, like, Japan ruled Taiwan with love, whereas KMT was, like, ruled us with— I, I forgot her word, but she, basically Japan good, KMT bad. And I'm not saying that the KMT wasn't bad and that the KMT would, didn't commit atrocities or that it was, like, an ideal leadership. But— did Japan really rule Taiwan with love? Because here's one thing that I guess a lot of people don't know is people Japanese people who were born in Taiwan, like I, like the children of colonizers, they were called Taisei in Japanese, or Taison, which means born in Taiwan, right? After World War II, when they moved back to Japan, they were discriminated against by Japanese people for like not being sufficiently Japanese. If those people were discriminated against what do you what do you think was the um like the the position of like real Taiwanese in in Japan? Do you think there was
0: a lot of respect going on? I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, like you you, you can even see this in uh like a uh, lot of this is kind of one way unrequited love from <laughs> from the Taiwan population to it to is. Japan. Uh, Richard, sure, You have a question.
3: Yeah, I want to see if Joseph has a question before we close out.
2: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I appreciate the conversation today. I I definitely learned a lot. Um I don't have any further questions.
1: Sorry, it took too long to explain oh, no. so many of these things. It's like we get so excited. And yeah, like I guess um so a lot of your questions just required a lot of explanation just because we wanted to make it make as much sense as possible. Yeah. Because um, and here's a disclaimer: like, okay, we have our views. We're not saying that. Like, we're not saying that everyone is obliged to, you know, support reunification or whatever, but we want to just present the historical facts and just provide a context that's not given as much spotlight in the mainstream media.
0: Yeah, especially the English language media, because a lot of time, a yes. lot of these contexts gets lost in the English language media reporting. That's why people use terms like native Taiwanese when. Uh, exactly. which created a lot of confusion. You know, a lot of people who don't know the history of Taiwan, they may think about, think they, that the so-called native Taiwanese actually refer to the indigenous people of Taiwan. That's not the case. Uh, the, you know, the indigenous people of Taiwan are the indigenous people of Taiwan, which is this marginalized yes. community composed of 2% of the total population right now. Um, and and they, as, as Xiang Yu mentioned earlier, that the, the uh, they're treated... Uh, they're they're often like afterthoughts, right, in the political process, and and KMT at least use it as a as a vote bank. <laughs> by buying up their votes,
1: whereas DPP just likes to um, tokenize them. Yeah, I, I, both of them do. But like I said, from their perspective, at least the KMT has the decency to buy their votes. Yes.
3: <laughs> yeah, so th- th- that's the thing wh- about you know this podcast is that you know when especially after the uh, Tibet episode, we had a lot of people just like give us like without even listening to the episode, they just you know gave us a lot of heat and just like you said, uh, Chanyu, that a lot of this stuff requires longer explanations. It's not something you can just tweet about, you know, like, and be like, oh, a short tweet and explain the whole history of Tibet, you know, or Taiwan or, or Hong Kong. It's, you know, we, we can have conversations. And if we don't have conversations, people won't understand. Or they just buy into, like, Western propaganda. And, you know, that's, and I hope anybody that, really gives us criticism, really hears the whole episode before they give us criticism instead of just like- They won't. Yeah, they won't. But they, I hope they do. <laughs> That's the point of this. Broadcast. I mean, I, I just yeah. want to point out to the
0: people to say, "Oh, uh, what's your qualification for talking about Taiwan?" I mean, Xiang Yu literally have family that stretches like more than six generations <laughs> to in Taiwan. You know, I think he's qualified to talk about. <laughs> Taiwan am <laughs> i can you explain to to the English audience what you just said? <laughs> so um,
1: basically, um, when Li Donghui was promoting Ma ying to be become mayor of Taipei, like he wanted, to, like at that point, he was trying to get like support for like across like um um not ethnic, but like group like group lines like between本省人 and 外省人. So Ma ying was a 外省人, like his parent He was yeah, he grew up in Taiwan, but his parents were. From the mainland so then um you do asked him as my angel is he like hey my angel what do you identify as and Ma angel was like i drink i i eat I, I eat rice grown in taiwan i drink water from taiwan i am a new taiwanese
0: but but in a uh, very accented wow. accented uh taiwan oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: this token is, is very bad like when i feel uh, when i when i like feel a little bit Sad about the fact that my Hokkien isn't the best. It's not too bad, but it's not the best. I watch his videos and I feel like very good about myself. <laughs> like yeah. um, I'm told in Taiwan that like um when I speak Hokkien, I have a bit of a Weisheng accent, uh, but yeah. not like an American accent. Yeah. Which is
3: yeah, I, I just you know hope everybody you know listens to your um, series on Carl's podcast. Yeah, I I, I binged that series uh, for the last like three days, so. Wow, <laughs> three days. Yeah. Sorry for making it too no, long. No, it was good, dude. You know, like I, it, it was good. I enjoyed it. Like there was nothing that well. I never got bored from it. Maybe it's just me, but I, I actually liked it. And I think people, and even even within that series, you know, both of you were saying that you know th- that. It, some of the, the subjects will be even longer or, even you know, explained even longer uh, you know, I really do think, you know, appreciate your time here and appreciate, you know, just, you know, it's been like three hours now, three and a half hours. Yeah. But I think, yeah. you know, it, it, a lot of the stuff, you know, like it's, It it deserves more conversation. And I hope, you know, that people, you know, understand that, you know, they need to continue to research this subject or Taiwan or, you know, uh, history, you know, politics. So,
0: yeah. uh, And and you're on Twitter now, right? Xiang Yu, what's your Twitter handle if people want to follow you? At not
1: Xiang Xiangyu, N O T X I A N G Y U, because my previous attempts to make a new account were instantly nuked by Twitter. So <laughs> this time, I enough time has passed. Um, I have a new IP address now because, like, yeah, okay, like I um, replaced the O-N-T for my internet, and then I realized I have a Chinese SIM card, so I use that phone number instead. And then I decide <laughs> to, to prove that I'm not me. I, I'm I just okay. I'm not Xiangyu. <laughs> So far, okay. it hasn't been nuked yet, and I'm on my best behavior now. Okay. I'm not calling people mean names anymore.
0: <laughs> okay, okay, Richard. Uh, <laughs> if people want to reach you uh, on social media, where do they go?
3: They go to just the uh, decolonized Buffalo Twitter or Instagram or whatever Facebook. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty easy. So, okay, Joseph.
2: Anything you want to promote? Your social media handle. Uh, sure, I'm on Twitter, i um, at Shred Flintstone, and uh, you can follow the Red Nation Great Lakes um, on Facebook or Instagram. Great. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for making this uh, long,
0: but hopefully informative uh, podcast on Taiwan. Uh, and for everybody listening, thank you for tuning in. Until next time. Bye bye.